We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Arizona, Colorado, Indiana, Michigan, New Jersey, Tennessee, and Virginia. WinBet is now live in all these states, and the excitement of Win Las Vegas has finally landed in online sports betting and casino play. From boosted parlays to live in-game odds on every major sport, WinBet gives you the tools to win. Sign up today for your risk-free $1,000 sports bet. Download the WinBet app now or visit wynnbet.com to start winning. Hello? We're on to Cincinnati. You play to win the game. It was all that Dan Marino's fault. Everyone knows that. When it's too tough for them, it's just right for us. Rockpile Report, AFC East Roundup, hosted by Bill's season ticket holder, Drew Gear, a part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the AFC East Roundup Podcast. I'm your host, Bill's season ticket holder, Drew Gear. That's my producer, Chris Krueger. And we're looking at week five, Chris. Week five wrap up for the NFL before we head into week six action. You take a look at the standings, and it is. N- Chris, life is hard here in the AFCs for a lot of people, right? 100%, yeah. <laughs> all right, you look at the standings. First of all, the Buffalo Bills sitting at 4-1, and one, perhaps the hottest team in the NFL right now. On a four-game winning streak, taking down the quote-unquote gold standard Kansas City Chiefs in the process and owning a two-game lead in the division that at this point feels a lot bigger than that. Bringing up uh, second place is New England. It took some late-game heroics, but the Patriots managed to get their second win of the season at the wire against the juggernaut that is the Houston Texans. <laughs> Even though their points for four versus points against margin is just plus four, the Patriots are just two games back of the AFC East lead. Miami, with their fourth consecutive loss, falling to one and four. And staring into the abyss, the Dolphins are on the ropes and a season that had some bullshit artists, excuse me, sports analysts calling them prohibitive favorites in the division just a few weeks ago. That whole idea is on life support. They own the worst point differential in the division. And at this rate, 
when Tua does come back from his injury, I don't know what he's going to have left to play for. The next time we have Brett Coleman on a show, we'll have to make fun of him because he did pick the Dolphins to win the division. Is that a fact? That is a fact. Oh, I wish you had brought that up during his appearance during last week's podcast. I would have roasted him like so many marshmallows. Ugh. Gah! And then bringing up the rear of the train, the Jets. The Jets are once again staring down the barrel of a 1-4 start, despite a defense that has looked at times pretty strong. And even the pessimistic narratives are starting... Pessimistic narratives are starting to build. The natives are starting to get restless. This whole thing is a mess. Because this was supposed to be a season of growth for the Jets, right? Yeah. And yet, we haven't seen it. We kick things off... As we always do at the bottom of the division, and it starts with the Jets, who lost to the Falcons 27-20. to And we start, as it always does with Scott Mason. And before, before we get into this, Scott, I want you to hear this too. London games are awful, right? They stink. It seems fun, but the reality is the only reason that you get picked to go there is because you haven't made the playoffs, or you're Jacksonville, which at this point... If, if Jacksonville announced that they were moving to England, I'm pretty sure the people of Duval County would almost rather see it happen in exchange for, like, a cool soccer team or, like, a really good women's volleyball team. I don't know. But unless you're a hard drinker like us, it's probably difficult to start throwing back cold ones before 9 o'clock in the morning. So that means that if you're a normal person, you're forced to just sit in sobriety as you watch your football team. And if they lose, you've got this long, ugly day of frustration ahead of you. <laughs> With that, I want you to talk to us about what happened to you guys over in London. First of all, in the aftermath of this, Scott, what was your immediate knee-jerk emotion? I think more than anything, it was just frustration because... We talked last week, and obviously everybody was very excited based on how well the team played. The offense came to life. Zach Wilson looked great. It was by far his best performance of the season. And then all that kind of went up in smoke against a bad Falcons team. And the story of this one was, have you ever been near a train track, right? And the... The, um, the gates or whatever you would call them for the train, they start to drop. You get the, the red ding, 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 yep. ding, ding, thing. And it's dropping, and you see the train coming, right? Now imagine that you're, uh, that you're going for a walk or something, and you're walking, and you get to those train tracks, and the thing starts coming down. And now you see the train, and it's coming. And it's coming fast. And you see it coming, and you know it's coming. But... You just can't get out of the way. <laughs> and boom, it plows you. And that's essentially what happened because, guys, there are a couple of storylines here, but one of them is that everybody knew, everyone, that with the wide receivers out, Gage and Ridley, Matt Ryan had two reliable weapons, or on paper anyway. Corderell Patterson, who's had a career year, he's been excellent. And Kyle Pitts, who hadn't done much yet, but obviously you know what the deal is with him, number four overall pick, supreme talent, all that. And so you knew those are the only two guys that could really hurt you. And so you'd figure the Jets would do everything in their power to take those guys out, and yet both of them 
had 115 yards of total offense, and Pitts got his first career touchdown. And then you go ahead and you look at what happened on the offensive side of the ball, and it was frustrating because Zach Wilson, for as great as he was last week, one thing that everybody said was, like we talked about with Josh Allen, he's having trouble with the simple throws. And the thing is, you overlook that when he's hitting the dynamic throws, but on a week like this where that wasn't really happening, it stands out like a sore thumb that he's having a problem connecting on simple screens and things like that. And then on the defensive side of the ball, you and I talked last week about how impressive unexpectedly the Jets' defense has been this year. Well, that all kind of went up in smoke, too, because A, like I said, they failed to stop the two guys that were a threat to them. B, they gave Matt Ryan all day to throw the ball. And C, they just kept wilting time and time again on key third downs. Third and 13, third and 12, didn't matter. The Falcons would pick up that first down. And this was just a terrible performance all the way around. It's weird because the Patriots game, everybody was sick to their stomachs after that. But the key storyline there was Zach Wilson was bad. The rest of the team was pretty good, right? The Denver game was terrible, but Wilson was okay, I guess. And the defense wasn't great, but they weren't embarrassing. This game, everyone was bad. Just all the way around, it was a total team effort of putrid. And that, I think, is what you take away from this. And like I said, it's that just disappointment and, and that feeling that you're standing on the train tracks, the train's coming through, you can't move, you can't get away, you're about to get hit, and there's nothing you can do about it. Dude, so our experience with London games, we tried to record a podcast once, immediately following a Buffalo-Jacksonville game in London. We recorded 40 minutes of audio. Chris, how much of that was usable once you boiled it all down? Maybe <laughs> maybe just under three yeah. minutes. And just I- a- they had to bleep things out because Drew went a little. Yeah, it was it, it was a, a disaster. Little, yeah, which is why I not only don't advocate for these London games, but I feel bad for anyone who has to get dragged into them because when they don't go well, I mean, Chris, think about how poorly that series has treated the AFC East. The Jets got me thinking about it. I was like, what's what's the AFC East record over there in London? Well, I can tell you that the uh, the Bills haven't won a London game. No, we lost to Jacksonville. We've only been there once. Okay, so we lost to Jacksonville. Correct. Miami got shut out in London against the Saints. Yeah. With Jay Cutler at quarterback. That was the game, I think, where he was like famously like just his nonchalant pose and attitude on the sideline. They were like people started photoshopping cigarettes in his mouth. Yeah. Like while he was standing around. Yeah, they're going back this week. They're heading back this week for hopefully... I don't think anyone in the AFC, and the Patriots have never had to play there. I don't think anyone in the AFC East has won a London football game, have they? Call in if you know. <laughs> but, with that, but with that in mind, one of the emerging storylines that I have to ask you about coming out of the aftermath of this thing, the development of Zach Wilson. We talked a week or two ago about how subpar offensive coordinating was not doing your team any favors. We're talking about a football team that has zero first drive points this year and 13 total in the first half of all their games combined. You're the worst team in the NFL in terms of time of possession, a full 11% lower than the 31st place 49ers. 
how much is the and I think the other damning thing is that the team doesn't have an identity, right? Like they went out and built the offensive line. You went out and invested draft capital in the running back stable. You brought in free agent running backs and Tevin Coleman. You said, hey, we are going to build a line. We're going to build a rushing attack. We have a good defensive. On paper, everything here seemed like it should work. And yet nobody knows what this team offensively even wants to be. And the result is 166 passing yards. How much of the development of Zach Wilson do you think is being hindered by a subpar just offensive brain trust and, like I said, a real lack of identity here. It's There's so many layers to this, honestly. What I wonder about, Tim Jenkins, who's an absolutely phenomenal quarterback coach, he's actually the quarterback coach for P.J. Walker, who plays for Carolina right now, and if Sam Darnold keeps playing the way he has the last couple of weeks, P.J. may end up the starting quarterback at some point. But Tim is phenomenal at explaining this kind of stuff and he comes on my show once a week to break down Zach Wilson's performance and when I asked him about LaFleur what he said to me is look I don't think the game plan is really anything that I would worry about he said it's perfectly fine because what I wonder about is I'm seeing receivers that seem kind of confused on routes Wilson is missing these easy throws that he shouldn't be missing it's week five. I wonder if, and this is him saying it, but it's something that anybody should wonder about. I wonder if Mike LaFleur is one of those guys who's fine in the in, in the room on a chalkboard, but when it comes to like teaching and explaining, he leaves a lot to be desired. Now, I don't know that for a fact, but it would explain a lot because, like I said, when these players are confused, look, Zach Wilson, you go back and look at his tape. And people talk about cupcake schedule, a lot of time to throw, blah, blah, blah. Look, bottom line is he's had time to throw uh, in a lot of these games with the Jets. I don't think that's the major factor here. Something is going on that has made these these issues pop up. They weren't on his BYU tape. I wasn't hearing stories about it at training camp where he was throwing screen passes at guys' feet, right? I didn't see it in the preseason. So something's going on here. And, yeah, obviously, if Wilson is having these issues, certainly that's on him to a a degree. I don't know exactly what's happening. Maybe it's a mental block or whatever. But that's part of the coach's job is to figure out what's going on and help fix this. It's week five. I don't think this should still be going on. And then when you look at the Denzel Mims-Elijah Moore situation, look, Elijah Moore has been getting open a lot, and – whether it's Wilson not seeing him or they're not drawing up plays for Elijah Moore, whatever it is, he's not getting touches. So if you realize that the quarterback is, is having an issue or you're not drawing up the right plays, then you've got to design some plays, easy ones, for Moore to be involved in. And that, that could even be something as simple as what you saw the Giants do with Kadarius Toney on Sunday where he had close to 200 yards against the Cowboys where – they were all pretty simple passing concepts, and you could even use them on jet sweeps and stuff. And then you look at the Denzel Mims thing. That whole thing is crazy. He finally got in the game and had the longest play of the game for the Jets. Now, you Wilson's having trouble at the moment with these short, easy passes. Who is arguably your best vertical weapon, or at least one of them? 6'3", 215, runs a 4'3", 840, ring a bell? 
Denzel Mims. So why aren't you getting him more involved in the offense? And look, that's one of those where if you read between the lines, you can kind of tell that there's some real friction there between the coaching staff and Mims. When when Mims was asked about, uh, I think this was a few weeks ago or a few months ago, about what was going on in the offense, he said something along the lines of, I have nothing but love for Coach Sala, but never said anything about LaFleur. We've heard stories about LaFleur basically saying that Mims is not up to speed on the playbook, which to me is absurd. Who cares? Like, you don't have to have a PhD-level understanding of the playbook. Figure out how to use this guy with his mm-hmm. speed and his skill and his physicality. And then on top of that, you hear stories like Andy Vasquez, who covers the Jets from NorthJersey.com and comes on with me after all the games, told me that at one point he saw Miles Austin conversing with the wide receiving group and Denzel Mims was off on the side by himself. Now, maybe that's contributing to why the coaching staff doesn't like Mims, but for God's sakes, this isn't high school. I don't care whether you like Denzel Mims or not. You have a rookie quarterback to develop. You've got a guy who, when he gets in the game and gets opportunities, produces and plays into what the quarterback does best at a time when he's struggling and needs help. Get him in the damn game. So, look, I'm not going to put this all on the feet of LaFleur. I don't think that's fair. There's a lot going on that's not his fault. But there's certainly stuff to point out. And like I said, I wonder, or at least I've been starting to wonder, if maybe this is one of those you're too smart for your own good type of things where he has trouble communicating or teaching. Maybe he's not things in practice and, and his ego might be getting in the way when it comes to somebody like Denzel Mims. So basically what I'm saying, Drew, is obviously you have to pin a fair amount of this on Wilson's own performance, but LaFleur, I don't think, is doing a lot to help him, even though I do think some Jets fans are putting too much of the blame on him. They're acting oh, like it's sure. only his fault. No, no, he's no, no. Not listen, the problem, but I don't think he's. But I don't think he's. Uh, you know, let's put it this way: the, the Jets could benefit from a better offensive coordinator performance at this moment, even if Lafleur hasn't been anywhere near as bad as some Jets fans are making it out to be. Well, no, and, and listen, if you want to take anything away from this, back to the back to the Jet Jet Jets Nation, as you call it, if you want to take anything back with you, I'll give you this. People around here love the fact that I don't want to say love the fact. We hate the fact that EJ Manuel. You know, I'm thinking about it now because I'm thinking about our disastrous game in London, how that just the, the emotions that that yanked out of me that I didn't think existed at the Chris, that might have been our most volatile podcast at a time when we were still learning how to do this. And that was the first time I ever really just unleashed into a microphone and it felt good. And it kind of shaped the way that we do things now. But so in one, in one hand, it was a good thing. But it also gives me some perspective looking back at it as I'm sitting here listening to what you're saying and I'm thinking about our own, you know, Bill's tinted glasses. E.J. Manuel, the quarterback in that game, we all hated the fact that he never developed into anything. Chris, who was his coach? E.J. Manuel, the O.C.? Doug Marone. Well, Doug Marone was his head coach, you know, and Nate Hackett was his offensive coordinator. Yeah. You know, the the rookie in rookie first time NFL offensive coordinator Nate Hackett. EJ Manuel never developed. He never developed properly. Then Marone goes on to Jacksonville and brings Nate Hackett with him. And they get handed Blake Bortles. 
And guess who never develops as a consistent passer, even though he was drafted in the top five of his draft class? Blake Bortles. Sometimes a coaching staff can simply not be... It doesn't mean that they're bad at what they set out to do, but if you're not in the mold of, hey, I'm here and my strengths are player development, then sometimes you can be setting yourselves up for failure and setting the player up for failure. And it it just has this same feel to it. And I I genuinely lament that just for the fact that that's one more quarterback in the NFL who's not getting a fair shake and might, you know what I mean? Like, I just see that and it, it makes me sad a little bit. Now, you guys got your one win. You're one and four. I'm not going to do the thing. You know, every every time we end these things, we always ask about next week against the spread. I'm not going to make the joke about how the bye week is favored over the Jets because that's hack. <laughs> Instead, what I'm going to ask is what's one thing, one thing that the Jets can reasonably hope to address on this week off or a front that they need to regroup on that you think they can reasonably do so before they pick up the football again a week, two weeks from now. There's a variety of things, but I'd say the biggest thing by far is what I was just talking about. Zach Wilson made some, has made some dazzling plays. We, we saw it against the Tennessee Titans. We've seen it in spurts in pretty much all the games with the exception of the New England game. But the easy routine throws, he's having problems. Like I said, he threw a screen pass off the back of Morgan Moses, which was just horrifying to watch. I don't know what's causing this because... You know, and I, I said this on the podcast right after the game with Andy Vasquez. When the Bills drafted Josh Allen, when you looked at his Wyoming tape, you saw stuff like that where he would overthrow a guy on a screen pass by 10 yards or the simple stuff. He couldn't do it. And you knew it was baked into the cake that that was something that whoever his coordinator and the coaching staff and all that, they were going to have to work with him to fix it. We didn't think that was going to be the case with Zach Wilson because that wasn't what we saw on his BYU tape. Well, now it's become a problem. So you have to figure that that, the number one thing that the Jets have to do is address that problem and find a way to get Zach Wilson to a point where he's at a level that is at least respectable when it comes to the easy throws, the simple easy throws, right? Because if he can do those, it makes it a lot easier on the offense in general. Because, look, guys, the funny thing is, I mean, not funny, well, I guess funny haha for you, maybe not so much for <laughs> me. It's more like give me a tissue so I can cry. The Jets have scored 13 points in the first half this year. That's 2.5 points per, uh, per game in the, in the first half, okay? You're not beating anyone that way. They beat the Titans because they surged in the second half, but do you realize what a hole that is to climb out of in most games unless your defense is playing at an absolutely ridiculous level? So, like, look at the Jets. They were in a 17 nothing hole this past week against the Falcons before you could blink because the offense went in and out, um, three and out a handful of times, and the Falcons score on their first three drives. So the Jets have to get that fixed. And I think the number one key to fixing that is getting Zach Wilson to a point where he's respectable on these simple, easy throws. And again, it's extra frustrating because with Allen, you knew that was something that needed to be fixed. With Wilson, 
it didn't look like it was a problem. Now it's become one. I don't know why, but they've got to figure it out and they've got to find a way to fix it. Scott, you are a consummate professional. We love you. Thank you for... I really thought that this year was going to start differently for you guys. There was hope, there was optimism, and I looked forward to, you know, we, we made the joke all last year about you being the Brooklyn Brawler. Uh, I, I, I still don't think that the Jets, I mean, the Miami Dolphins are very quickly joining you guys in this company at the bottom of the division. It's going to be interesting to see who picks it up first. I mean, right now, I Chris, dice roll? Is yep. it Miami or the Jets? Where can people follow your podcast as we kind of follow the journey of this 2021 season? Where can they find you on social? Well, before we get to that, can I just make a point about the Dolphins? If I'm a Dolphins fan, I'd be way more distraught than us as Jets fans because if we're being real, yeah, we want Wilson to develop, but Jets fans mostly weren't expecting a lot in the way of wins. The Dolphins fans were puffing their chest out acting all big and bad, uh, thinking that they were going to give the Bills a run for their money in the division and make a playoff run. And now they're 1-4, just like the Jets, that uh, a Jets team that everyone knew wasn't going to win a lot of games. So what I guess what I'm saying is you, you and I and Chris, we can all unite on laughing at the Miami Dolphins and their stupid fans. Oh, yeah. They're so anyway, global, they're global and, Jim, and you guys are... You get, Elf, by the way. I'm sure he's a lovely guy. Oh, no. Elf's great. But they're global Jim, and you guys are average Joes. Like, that's, that's what right, this comes right. down to. I love it. Scott, a pleasure as always. Thank you, guys. And, yeah, real quickly, I'll give you uh, yep. where you can find what we're doing. Obviously, uh, at Play Like a Jet One on Twitter. You can download the podcast seven days a week, even during the bye week. God help me. It's <laughs> Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, Google Play, wherever you find podcasts. Just type in Play Like a Jet. We've got a store now. We've got the Zach Wilson Says Go Long shirt. The artwork is great. Luke Grant's girlfriend has designed it. She's an incredible artist. Uh, we've got the John Franklin Myers, Quentin Williams, Bless You, Thank You shirt. If you go to tpublic.com, that's T-E-E-public.com, and search Play Like a Jet, you'll find our store if you want to grab one of those. we got the YouTube channel. Luke Grant's been doing a lot of great film breakdowns. Uh, it, the YouTube channel's been building slowly but surely, and I'm really glad that we've been able to build it into something respectable the last couple of months. So check out the YouTube channel. Subscribe if you haven't already. Boys, as always, really appreciate you having me on. And I have to tell you, this is going to be the most stress-free Sunday that I've had in quite a while. Are you finally ready to win money and boost your odds? WinBet is now live in Arizona, Colorado, Indiana, Michigan, New Jersey, Tennessee, and Virginia. The excitement of Win Las Vegas has finally landed in online sports betting and casino play. Get exclusive rewards right at your fingertips. Get in on the action with your favorite teams and players from the NFL, MLB, NHL, golf, MMA, WNBA, college football, and more. Right now at WinBet, you can find great promos, odds, and payouts from boosted parlays to live in-game odds on every major sport. WinBet gives you the tools to win. Sign up today for your risk-free $1,000 sports bet. Download the WinBet app now or visit wynnbet.com to start winning. Offer subject to change. Terms and conditions at winbet.com must be 21 or older and present in the state where playthrough winbet is available. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem, call 1-800-522-4700. And so that brings us to the Miami Dolphins, who 
are tied with the Jets. In the basement of the AFC East, losing to Tampa Bay 45-17. to And tonight, Elf, I, I gotta ask, are... Things obviously, I mean, we, we've joked about it before, and I just, you see it more and more. The Dolphins fan base is just slowly losing its grip on reality. I mean, the, the, the factions of split, we talked about the various subsets and factions of Dolphins fa- you know, fandom and Dolphins Twitter. Those have splintered into even far more fanatical groups. I mean, you have people who are already calling for the GM and coach to be fired. People who are claiming that they're done watching if they lose to Jacksonville. Like, there's some crazy things being said out there. And yet you're stoic as ever, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, uh, you know, uh, get back to me when the season is over. And then I'll let you know my opinion of everybody involved. Uh, all we've learned so far this year is that the Jacoby Brissett signing was an absolute failure and that they're not uh, a contender for anything major. But all the goals that they set out to set for this season, they're still in front of them. Although now it's yeah, it's, you know, it's a daunting task. Well, it's now. funny that you say Jacoby Brissett. Like, my takeaways from the game, that is out of this, all the stuff I want to ask you about, just to get some better insight on this. Jacoby Brissett was brought in because he was this veteran presence who they said, listen, he's got some athleticism. We can work him in for some specialty package plays. There's some things he can do for us where he, he's a threat to pass, but he's also a threat to run. Uh, th- there was a lot of upside to the idea of Jacoby Brissett. And, you know, I sent you, I got a laugh out of you when I sent you that one, uh, that one tweet somebody put out where it was the coaching, the tweet was coaching staff to Jacoby. You need to throw the ball downfield more. And Jacoby to the coaching staff, and it was just a clip of Nick Saban after a game when he's frustrated and pissed off the media, and he's just saying, I'm not going to do it, so quit asking me. <laughs> like, that guy, yeah. I'm glad they could get a laugh out of you. But in truth, Brissett was gun-shy to start this season. He was more aggressive this weekend against Tampa Bay. I mean, he had five completions for more than 20 yards, but he didn't complete any touchdowns to wide receivers or tight ends. It's clear that he's not capable of orchestrating the passing attack that they had designed. And a part of me thinks it's because kind of like what happened. This is almost like a redo of what happened last year, where you've got an offensive system that's built around the skill set of one guy. And they haven't done a great job of tailoring that to the next man up. I mean, does that kind of track with you? Absolutely. And it's also been that, that that one guy, Jacoby Brissett, just been bad, right? He was really good against Tampa Bay. Uh, th- this game was just an absolute meltdown. Uh, I don't know if you saw much of this game, but they were facing essentially the best Tom Brady, best version of Tom Brady we've ever seen because he just finished having the greatest game in his career. It's the first time that he threw for 400 yards and five touchdown passes, and he had the highest quarterback rating of his career at 144. Uh, the game was it, – it, it looked like a good football game through three quarters when the score is 24-17 and the Dolphins have the ball. As soon as they punted, it was just an absolute avalanche <laughs> of bad plays, Tom Brady completions to Antonio Brown, then bombs to Mike Evans. It was one of the worst six minutes of football that I've ever seen. They scored 21 points in six minutes. And then the game's essentially over because everybody just starts sitting everybody and it's, you know, the, the game devolves into something that it wasn't. 
six minutes earlier. Well, and that's the craziest part about this game that I think the like the average fan wouldn't understand. Like I would, I was paying attention to the games, but I was trying to keep myself busy, specifically so I didn't start drinking too early in the day because I knew I was going to have a long night ahead of me. Although not nearly as long of a night as it turned out to be. But I, I figured, okay, it's going to be a long night. Don't start watching football now because if you do, you're going to crack a beer. And if you do that at one or two, you're not going to make it till whenever this is going to inevitably end later tonight. But I was paying attention to the game. And the whole time I'm like, I'm surprised to see them kind of trading punches. They're, they don't seem out of it. And then I left. And I came back and I saw what was going on. And I'm like, what the hell? So I open my phone, I start looking at the box score, and I see what you're talking about. This six-minute window where, I mean, the, the, just to look at the box score, two you had multiple 100-yard receivers in Antonio Brown and Mike Evans, the five passing touchdowns for Tom Brady. His passes, I mean, they were getting yards after the catch in chunks because his air yardage wasn't huge. By comparison, when you look at the sheer volume of yards and points that he put up, now, this Dolphins secondary, I mean, I guess the, the crazy thing to me is that this was supposed to be Javon Holland, you know, this highly touted rookie safety, the, the Xavier Howard renegotiation to keep him in-house, Byron Jones. Uh, I mean, we know Noah Igbenogane has struggled, but Nick Needham was having a great camp, and by all accounts, he was going to come in and be a difference maker this year. And I feel like teams have found ways lately to rough you guys up through the air. Where are the weak links that have been picked on here? Uh, in this game, I believe it was more schematic more than anything. Mm-hmm. And both guys, Xavier Howard and Byron Jones, were nursing injuries all week, and, and it was evident that they were not they were not the same. And uh, we're actually kind of used to the occasional Xavier Howard blow up, which happens like once every five games. There's a game where where he just gets absolutely smoked. The last time. He was beat this bad was, I believe, four years ago. Oddly enough, it was against the Patriots and Tom Brady. You know, he owns a couple of multiple interception games against Tom Brady. So they have history together. And on the podcast, uh, it was it was something really interesting that Chris Kaufman said. He said that Tom Brady, unlike a lot of other quarterbacks, he plays the game a little bit more personally than others. Yes. And they seem to have a plan for Xavier Howard. Xavier Howard has always struggled with crossing routes and they're going to run them and they're going to run them as much as they can to tire him out as much as they can and target him as much as they can because if he stays out on the boundary he's going to make a play on you and that's what worked uh, the pass rush got there for for most of the game but then it just stopped getting there and it seemed to have a really really good plan and and their plan was a little bit more interesting than than what most people let on, even on on the broadcast, they kept calling tackle eligibles over and over and over again and using six defensive linemen. And to be honest with you, I believe that Bruce Arian and Byron Lefwich absolutely undressed Brian Flores and Josh Border because their plan was absolutely destroyed. And after the game, Brian Flores even said, look, everything we called backfired and blew up in our face. So nothing we called worked. So so here you know, I think it was more on the scheme than anything else. So now in the aftermath of this loss, because like I said, it seemed like a game. It seemed like a game that you say, okay, even if we can maintain this and you lose a close scoring game, 
you're going to walk away from this as a team and as a fan base and say, okay, it didn't go our way, but we weren't expecting to beat Tom Brady with Jacoby Brissett anyway. But at least we made it respectable. And then, like you said, the wheels fall off for six minutes o'clock, and it destroys any good any good feelings or positive uh, positive emotions that you might have towards the team, the fan base, uh, the, the the coaching staff, the GM, anybody who has their fingerprints on this. How much of the blame for these collapses do you think falls on Brian Flores? Just in terms of because he has shuffled his coordinators to a degree that would make me a little concerned that they're not building continuity. I mean, how do you change that if you're constantly changing people? I mean, what, who, whose doorstep do you park a lot of the blame for this at? Uh, I guess it has to be at, at Chris Greer's doorstep, right? Um, he's the one who built this team, and Brian Flores actually has asked for all these resources on defense, and that's where we're, they were deficient on Sunday. So has to fall on him as well. So, you know, it's it's one of those things this week where, you know, as a team loses, everybody's going to finger point. And, you know, there is no savior on the horizon until today when they're activating Tua Tungvaloa off of IR and he's going to start on Sunday against the Jaguars. But they've turned over an absolute disaster and an absolute mess to the second-year quarterback. See, and that's and that's the frustrating part about this is that now two is coming back into the picture. Okay, he's our quarterback is back. Our, our our offense can start to build on what they had started at the beginning of the season. The problem is you're staring up at a one and a one and four hole that is going to be incredibly difficult to climb out of. I mean, they really didn't leave him much meat on the bone here, did they? No. They really did not. And uh, Devontae Parker didn't play in the, the Tampa Bay game. It looks like he's going to be back for this one. Uh, Preston Williams played against Tampa Bay and played well. And uh, Jalen Waddle had a horrific game against Tampa Bay. His, uh, his, he had two drops, and one of them led directly to an interception that iced the game. Uh, two consecutive uh, turnovers by Jacoby Brissett, which were in those six minutes, which started the avalanche going south so uh, yeah it's going to be it's going to be really interesting to see how they do this there is some some precedent to this before although it was with a different team a different quarterback different coach you know in 2016 they started one and four and ended the season 10 and six overall that's kind of what they're going to have to do they, they have a soft spot here in the schedule uh, until they play the bills so they're going to have to take advantage of Every single team that they play where they're favored or what you would call a winnable game, they're going to have to essentially run the table on those games well, for the rest of the way. I mean, it, it gets started for you guys this weekend. You're When you're looking at the spread next week, you guys are three-point favorites against Jacksonville. Uh, you're getting the home field advantage even though it's out there in London. Do you think that given the – I mean, some people would scoff at getting three points against an 0-5 team, but do you think the way that they're playing right now that that's about spot on? Uh, pretty much. I would say um, they were favored by, what was it, two and a half against the Colts, and then they laid an absolute egg against them. So the only time that they've actually showed up to play was week one against New England, really. <laughs> if you think about it, they were a one-point underdog against New England, and they actually won by one point. So, yeah, there's the, 
they've built no no goodwill this season, and it's been really no part of this team. Like, there's no part of this team that you could point to and say that guy's playing well, those guys are playing well, that unit is playing well, and. At least the, the good thing is that they have recognized some of their mistakes, and this coaching staff has always been pretty good about trying to correct those things. Well, folks, Elfar Tiago, one of the more reasonable voices out there, one of the more reasonable voices available to you if you choose to peruse our opposing fan bases on social media. Where can people follow you on Twitter, Elf? Uh, of course, at three yards per carry. That's the number three yards per carry. You want to follow me? Uh, it's Alf underscore Artiaga. And uh, oh, by the way, uh, we talked about this last week. I, I expected Austin Jackson to get moved to left guard, and that did happen. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So moving on to more pleasant topics, the only other team in the AFC East to win besides the Buffalo Bills, the New England Patriots, who beat the Houston Texans 25-22. And here to go through all the gory details, our friend Mike Debate. How are you, sir? I'm doing well, gentlemen. Always a pleasure to join you. Yeah, gory details, probably appropriate, but uh, you know what? At the end of the day, a win is a win, and here in New England now, the tables have definitely turned. We're uh, just happy to get back in the win column. You'll take them where you can get them, right? And the fact that you're second place in the AFC East, I mean, record aside, second place in your division is not a bad place to be, right? Definitely not, no, especially when, uh, you know, you're looking up at a team in the Buffalo Bills that looks primed and, and ready to uh, to take that uh, top spot in the AFC, uh, beating up on the uh, the Kansas City Chiefs, which uh, I know some Patriots fans will sit there and tell you that, oh, we had to, you know, root for the Chiefs this weekend, but there are a lot of Patriots fans that might not have been too disappointed to see the Chiefs go down either. So, you know what, uh, if you're second place in this division right now, definitely a good spot to be. That's the old enemy of my enemy is my friend bit. That's right. <laughs> so I I want to talk about the game, but I want to talk about first what I think is kind of like the butterfly effect going into this game. First of all, the trade of Stephon Gilmore. Mm-hmm. The immediate fallout of this. Now, we, you and I have talked about this on this show. We talked about the state of the secondary, some of the passing that was being allowed. And a lot of times the conversations would skew towards, well, eventually Gilmore will be back and there'll be this kind of changing in the... The alignment of people and it'll bring a new dynamic to the secondary and almost essentially like, hey, someday help is on the way. And then that trade happens. What was the immediate fallout amongst Patriots fans? 
amongst the fan base. The uh, fan yeah, base. there were a lot of surprised people. To be honest, guys, I was one of them. I mean, the all the indications that we were getting was that Stefan was getting ready to get back onto the field, that most likely when uh, his time on the uh, reserve pup list was done, that he would be ready to rejoin the team. His physicality looked to be in good shape at that point. Uh, there was not a lot of optimism that he would be in New England beyond this year, uh, but there was all indications that they would try to make a go of it for at least one more year and give the Patriots an opportunity to be able to put that type of defense they wanted to put together when they spent all this money in the offseason, bringing in guys like Matt Judon, bringing back Kyle Van Noy, Devon Godchow in the middle part of that uh, uh, interior of the defensive line, even Henry Anderson now who is on season-ending IR. They brought these guys in for a purpose to be able to give a front seven that was equal to what had been the strength of this Patriots defense right along was their secondary anchored by Stefan Gilmore. When he gets traded away, all of a sudden, now you look at J.C. Jackson being the undisputed number one option. Now you're looking at the outside corner position, which I've said right along was a liability for this team. And you look at guys like Jalen Mills and Joan Williams that have to pick up the load. So all of a sudden, all eyes were on J.C. Jackson, and now you've got a lot of Patriots fans that are sitting there saying, well, how could you let one of your hottest commodities, one of your most valuable assets, essentially walk out the door for what equates to a sixth-round pick in 2023? Not a lot of happy people about it, and really there weren't a whole lot of valid answers as to the reason for it. Uh, I don't know if it was misplayed on the Patriots' part. I don't know if maybe the 11th hour was the deciding factor, but ultimately it was a difficult situation and one that uh, really I think still stings a little bit, especially from what we saw on the field on Sunday. Well, and I guess that's it, is when you look at the fallout of that, you know, the week that they decide to trade away Stephon Gilmore and they say, it's okay, we've got some time to regroup, we're playing a Davis Mills-led Houston team that just got shut out and embarrassed. He had, they had less than 100 yards through the air last week. Everything's going to be fine. It culminates in this nail-biter. <laughs> and you're looking down the barrel of this. I, 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 what were your emotions as you were watching this game? I know that you're a professional, that you've managed to kind of remove your fandom emotion from the emotion that you report on the game with. But where were you as the fan while that game is unfolding? Uh, Really surprised to see what the defense looked like early on. And look, the breakdowns in communication and the breakdowns in coverage didn't just happen in the secondary. There were problems on the front seven. There were problems in the interior of the defensive line. The linebackers were out of sorts. This was very uncharacteristic for a Patriots team, especially the defense that we've seen on the field. They looked to be very uh, much prepared for their opponent. Uh, I thought they did a phenomenal job defending against Tom Brady and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers offense coming back into Foxborough. You know Brady was pumped for that game. He was ready to put on a show. Patriots defense had a very good strategy, knocked them around a lot. Really, I think uh, the secondary got out there. You flood the secondary or the defensive backfield with defensive backs and take away the passing lanes that Tom Brady uh, uh, utilizes so well. The Patriots did that very well a couple of weeks ago. On Sunday, uh, maybe a little bit of a Brady letdown, maybe a little bit of a letdown or a problem with, you know, the locker room, whether or not, uh, you know, Stefan's trading sent shockwaves through that locker room. But ultimately, these guys are professionals. They need to be ready to go 
out there on the field, and they certainly were not. Now, in the latter part of the game, you saw that defense tighten up a little bit. J.C. Jackson, Devin McCourty had a very bad miscommunication that led to a 67-yard touchdown. Devin was way out of position to be able to play that. J.C. mistiming the, uh, the jump. That could have been an interception. Arguably, it should have been. And it just misses the top of his outstretched arm. And the Texans go the other way for 67 yards on that one. But in the second half, they cleared up a lot of that communication. They got back to basics and doing what this team does well. Clog the middle, be able to confuse at the line of scrimmage, get Davis Mills in a situation where he's not comfortable making throws or not comfortable moving around. And that's when you see guys like Matt Judon get after the passer. They were able to do that in the second half, and that's why you saw the Patriots make improvements. But they need to continue to do that. Even the improvements they made on Sunday in the latter part of that game are not nearly enough if they want to be able to hang with the Dallas Cowboys this week. That cannot happen on Sunday, and it can't happen uh, you know, in subsequent weeks beyond this if the Patriots want to try to compete for a playoff spot. I mean, in your article over at Sports Illustrated this week, you, you started recapping Sunday's game. You led it with the statement, Mac Jones outdueled Davis Mills. Did you ever expect that you would be penning those words in the run-up to this game? <laughs> Probably not, if I'm being honest with you. Usually, Bill Belichick shows a penchant of being able to confuse and befuddle a rookie quarterback. And that's certainly not what happened on Sunday. Credit Davis. I thought he played very well with a lot of poise. Uh, really came out and showed that he wasn't afraid to attack a Bill Belichick-led defense. But at the same time... You also don't want to give too much over-the-top credit because you look at the way the Patriots played and the breakdowns that they had, and it doesn't really surprise a mm-hmm. whole lot of people that things happen the way they did. So, look, the- bottom line, New England right now uh, is a team that is still in search of their identity. And quite honestly, gentlemen, I know it's going to you know really probably upset some Patriots fans that might be listening to this. I don't know if they've necessarily found it yet. I think it may be a little while before we find out what this team is really capable of doing, this is still a team right now that I think is chasing an identity, and that is not good when you look at the fact that you're now six weeks into the season. You have to start seeing some growth, and it, there is growth there, but it's very, very slow in terms of what Patriots fans thought this team might be capable of. I mean, if there's silver linings here for the Patriots, I'm looking at this and I'm saying to myself, okay, you've got – Mac Jones, who is, if you look at the young quarterbacks playing right now in the AFC, I mean, we've said it multiple times in this show as we're kind of recapping the picture of this. Sean McDermott's 9-1 and one against quarterbacks with less than one full season of starting experience as a head coach. I think that there's a reason for that. Kind of the way Belichick built his, you know, he, he has that statistic. What is he, Chris? It's less than 10 wins and he's got more than 25 Something like that. More than 25 wins and less than 10 losses. When you look at what Mac Jones is doing right now, he's playing well. 71% completion percentage in this game. He's being accurate. You're seeing some of the weapons that they brought in. I mean, Hunter Henry had a – is this his first big game for you guys? 
Yeah, 75 yards leading all uh, receivers uh, on Sunday. Had the 13-yard touchdown catch from Mac Jones. He and Mac are really developing a good uh, synergy. And the reason being is that Hunter is one of the best route runners I've ever covered, whether it be a wide receiver, whether it be a, a tight end. I mean, this kid just has a knack of being able to do it. Something that I picked up when I was covering the Chargers, when Henry was a young player, a rookie, and coming into his own. One of the great things that I remember seeing him on the field um, was his ability to be able to run routes and be able to open up the offense in that regard and be able to make the catches that he needs to make out of play action. That's Mac Jones's bread and butter, and right now he's developing a very, very nice synergy with uh, with Hunter Henry. This is a very good game for Hunter, and he really uh, is proving his worth in terms of the contract that he got in the offseason. And just one of the other things that stuck out to me was that despite rolling in here with a patchwork offensive line, I mean, those those problems have been why. I mean, whenever you see what's his name, uh, is it Froholt? Is that how you say that, or is it Yadni Kajus? Uh, Which one of those two guys is still Yadni Kajus? Yeah, Yadni okay. just, uh, uh Yelda was actually uh, he's he's been uh, gone from uh, yeah, Patriots I was for say, uh, a little while. He's now. gone. So you have depth players who are playing on the roster. I remember they came in in the same year. And I get them confused because I'm like, they're the two guys whose names I can't friggin' say. Like, I just can't pronounce them correctly at all. So you've got backups and sometimes backups, backups playing in the offensive line. You still manage to put together a good performance from a quarterbacking perspective. And then I see something like this. Ramondre Stevenson, 11 <laughs> rushes for 23 yards, 2.3 yards per carry. Is he just not seeing it? Like, I thought he was I, – I, when I looked at this running back stable at the beginning of the season, and I think I, I speak for a lot of Patriots fans when I say this, I saw Damian Harris as being like, okay, I'm going to be your lead back. I proved I can carry the load last year. You still got James White, who is a great receiving back, one of the NFL's better receiving backs. Although, no, he's actually hurt now, correct? Yeah, James is on yeah. season ending. So who's handling does, that role for you guys team. now? Who's handling that receiving back role? Right now, I mean, in terms of what the Patriots would like to do, it's going to be by committee. I don't think there's going to be one guy that's going to take that role that is going to be able to duplicate what James White gave you on the field. Now, in a combination type, you look at people like Ramondre Stevenson, who did that very well in his days at Oklahoma. Damian Harris was able to get the ball out of the backfield and receive it and break for yards with Alabama. You know this as well as anyone oh, being yeah. an Alabama fan. And also, J.J. Taylor is someone that can do that. He did that very well with Arizona. The problem is, is the three backs that I just mentioned have all had their issues with fumbles. And the easiest way to to essentially earn your way into that Belichickian double secret probation list that I like to throw around on Locked On Patriots is to not secure the football. Harris has had two costly fumbles for the Patriots, one against uh, the Texans on Sunday and, of course, the one in week one that essentially cost the Patriots the game. Um, Stevenson had a, a fumble in that game as well, and we didn't see Stevenson until, again, this past Sunday. He basically was a healthy scratch for games two through, uh, through four uh, for the New England Patriots, and Taylor had a pretty bad fumble himself against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. So until these guys prove that they can, can – and secure the football, it's going to be very difficult for Bill Belichick to trust them in these moments. So that's why I think you're going to see any type of receiving back 
uh, is most likely going to come, uh, you know, either by committee or maybe even utilize Jakob Johnson, the fullback in that role. Maybe even John o. Smith taking some of the uh, the jet sweeps. We saw that a little bit on Sunday. I would definitely look for more of that this Sunday against the uh, the Dallas Cowboys. Is there any concern starting to build in the Patriots fan base that maybe after because year over year over year, one of the narratives that's kind of slowly built some steam is just that there's been a lot of mediocre drafting going on in New England. Mm-hmm. Well, as we're starting to see play out in Miami, it's not so much that you draft poorly. Sometimes you draft good players, but when it comes to developing them, that sometimes is a blind spot. Like de- player development hurts. You guys have lost Dante Scarnecchia, who was one mm-hmm. of the game's best off- offensive line coaches of all time. I mean, I-, I-, I would argue if someone came to me and said, hey, would you sign this petition? that you would put Scar in the Hall of Fame, give him a gold jacket? I would, because I think that he's played such a vital role for the Patriots' success for 20 years that he doesn't get credit for. What I'm looking at now is a young Patriots team that instead of this dynamic of, hey, you made a mistake, you're in the doghouse, and you stay there, and you don't see the football field. This is a young football team that's growing around young pieces. Is there any concern amongst you guys in the Patriots media that maybe this heavy-handed Bilicekian approach isn't the right one for a young football team that's trying to develop talents that need time to fail in order to learn how to succeed? Uh, it depends. That's a loaded question. That's actually a really, really good question. I'm, I'm glad that you asked that because essentially what we're seeing right now in New England, yes, is a little bit of a changing of the guard in terms of how Patriots do business, how they're moving forward. We have seen a little bit of a change in Bill Belichick and the uh, methods uh, that he's employing and the way in which he's coaching this team. I think maybe listening to some of the noise, quote unquote, that he claims to have locked out most of the time uh, in terms of listening to his younger players and being a little bit more amenable uh, to some new tactics and uh, to some new strategy in terms of being able to develop them. Uh, at the same time, there's also a proven track record for the way he does business. So he's not going to deviate from that too much. If it ain't really broke, folks, you don't want to go ahead and fix the wheel uh, unnecessarily. So there's going to be a little bit of a blend of styles right now. And I think that is where guys like Gerard Mayo on the defensive side of the ball have really come into play, um, taking a little bit of that maybe heavy-handedness that you see in a Belichickian-type coach defense and being able to bring it into more of a modern setting. Um, behind the scenes, I hear so many great things about Gerard and how much of, of a help he is to the linebackers, to the front seven, to even the defensive backs, being able to bridge that gap because he's not too far removed from having to warm the uniform. So he understands where that's coming from. Josh McDaniels has always been more of a progressive type coach on offense. So I think that kind of bridges the gap there a little bit. But ultimately, in terms of bringing along young players and bringing along rookies, I think it is a little bit of a fair criticism to say that maybe he'll fit. But then there are some circumstances where you see some of the drafting that happened where these guys do end up being a very good fit in New England. I think a lot of the magnification of the struggles that young players have in New England happens a lot because of the uniform that you're wearing. I think in a lot of ways you'll see that it's not as abnormal as you think when you look at teams throughout the league in terms of hit or miss draft picks. I love that I can ask you these questions because there's a lot of Patriots fans I would ask that to who just immediately assume I'm being a dick. (laughs) 
look, I, I love having these conversations with you. So with that in mind, second place in the AFC East, just two games back. You're still logistically within striking distance of it. Does it feel that way? Uh, yes and no. I mean, when you look at second place in the division, you're automatically looking and saying, oh, okay, Buffalo's four and one, we're two and three. I mean, you know, naturally you look at the numbers and you say, okay, well, it's still very early. A lot can happen between now and the end of the season or even midseason or heading into the bye week in terms of what this team can do to turn itself around. You look at what the Buffalo Bills do on both sides of the football, and I've said this before the season, I say it now, and I'm going to continue to say it until someone proves me wrong. They are by far the class of this division, class of the conference right now. So you're chasing, really, I think, the position that you're in right now. You're trying to maintain it. Miami has sputtered a little bit more than most people thought they were going to. They look like they're going to get to attack of Iloa back this week. So does that right the ship? Who knows? Maybe Miami is able to put it together and they start to make a run and really put pressure on the New England Patriots. Um, But at the same time, you also look at what the Patriots are doing and they were able to squeak out a victory that ultimately, if you look at the first half of Sunday's game, they had no business winning. They were absolutely being outplayed by one of the lower tier teams in the league. And that's why a win didn't really do much to help their power rankings in the national uh, you know, scheme of things. And I wrote about this today uh, that really, I mean, a win sometimes is good, but it can also expose your flaws. And that's exactly what the Patriots are doing. If they want to be within striking distance of playoff teams that they feel that they could maybe give a run to their money to, they're going to have to shore up the difficulties that they have on defense. And that offense is going to have to continue to evolve under Mac Jones. They got better offensive line play from a makeshift line, which is absolutely shocking to me, but they did. And guys like Ted Garris and Yadni just like you mentioned earlier, were big parts of that. When they start to get the starters back and you start to see this unit gel a little bit, that could open up things for play action and Mac Jones to be able to lead this offense. And he's got to lean on the running game. They've got to do a much better job of securing the football to take pressure off of him. If all of those things can happen, then, yeah, it'll feel like they're within striking distance. But if these struggles continue, uh, then, you know, even the the era of good feelings right now in New England, it being two and three, despite how you've played, is going to be very, very short-lived because they get some very tough teams coming up on the schedule, Dallas being one of them. Then you're looking a couple of weeks down the line uh, going against the Los Angeles Chargers, and that looks like a tough game for them as well, especially in L.A. No, of course. I mean, you guys trailed into the late fourth, almost the entire game in this last one against a team that just got shut up by Buffalo. Next week against the spread, you're a a three-and-a-half-point dog to the Cowboys. Do you agree or disagree? I agree right now. You look at the way the Cowboys are set up. They're four and one. They're coming in with a very balanced offense, whether it be Dak Prescott being able to utilize CeeDee Lamb and some of the great receivers that they have uh, on that team and also being able to lean back on Zeke Elliott and be able to run the football. Uh, They're playing with a lot of confidence on defense. It's going to be a tough game for the Patriots. I know they're the hometown team, but Dallas is coming in with a lot of poise and a lot of confidence. So this is going to be a tough one. I don't disagree with the spread right now. I think it's probably accurate, but there's something to be said about the team coming home and trying to find its rhythm. If they can pull this one off, then I think a lot of Patriots fans will get back on that bandwagon. At that point, they'll be 500, and then you have to argue that you know maybe this team has taken its toughest you know challenge, and they'll still be able to compete. But ultimately, uh, this, this is going to be a tough one on Sunday, no question about it. Where can everybody find your work, and where can they follow you on Twitter? Because not only are you an interesting follow, but I love your articles 
over Patriots Maven because you always manage to incorporate some bit of and this is from a guy who hates your franchise. You incorporate a little <laughs> bit of nostalgia, some classic rock references, some various things that just keeps me interested. Where can everybody find your work and where can they follow you, sir? Uh, you can follow me on the Bird app at M-D-A-B-A-T-E-N-F-L. Uh, you can find all of my written work at Patriots Maven of Sports Illustrated. Um, and also you can find me each and every day on the Locked On Patriots podcast, free and available wherever you get your podcasts. Scott Mason, Alf Artiaga, and Mike Debate. They are the demolition of <laughs> podcasting for their How respective teams. How many more teams. exist? How many more? A billion. There's a billion. Oh, it's, my God. It's not going to stop. You're going <laughs> to hear me refer to our AFC East guests as wrestling trios. Uh, it, it's... I love these guys, right? And at this point, it's starting to feel like abuse, and I don't mean it to be. I mean, you look at our Buffalo Bills. We beat Kansas City 38-20. to Now, if you haven't listened to our epic recap of that game featuring Bills team captain Reed Ferguson, make sure you go back and check it out because that, Chris, that might have been one of my, one of my favorite podcasts to record. Yeah, we learned about peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Yeah, and how you feel about them, which is wildly incorrect. Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna make a fucking social media poll. Don't you make me do it. Well, how are you gonna how are you gonna to label it? Is it like by percentage of like what's yes. the ratio of jelly what's to peanut ratio? butter? And, and we should we should ask Ryan Sullivan, we, oh God. food take connoisseur on Twitter. That guy, fight. He ate bologna with no condiments on it. The man, he's not fit. He's not fit to rank anything on social media. Bologna dry? That's terrible. Yeah, I'm going to tweet at him right now. (laughs) See what he says. Eating a bologna sandwich with no condiments is kind of like drinking a warm warm Jenny cream ale. You don't have to do that. You're choosing to. You're choosing to make a terrible life choice. I, I can't help you. But so when you look at our Buffalo Bills, they have elevated themselves beyond the division race in my mind. I'm sure there's a lot of fans who feel that way, even with the Patriots just a few games back. So I take a step back and I I take a look at the AFC race. And it's just funny to me when you consider where we were just a few weeks ago. The Bills were one and one, and everyone was full of some hot takes. Uh, the Broncos are this resurgent franchise who, with Teddy Bridgewater at the helm, are ready to step to the, step to the forefront of the AFC. Baltimore was going to the friggin' Super Bowl. Kansas City had a few hiccups, but they'd be back on top of the league in no time. And the Bills? They were frauds. They were frauds, according to Bart Scott. They were shaky on offense. There was talk that Allen's 2020 season was some kind of fluke. Now let's take a look back at it, Chris. We own the AFC's highest scoring offense, the AFC's stingiest defense. Our plus 108 point differential is the best in the league. I mean, it's it's not quite on pace with the 2007 Patriots or the 1985 Bears, but I heard an interesting point today. Not only have the Bills become the measuring stick for the conference on both sides of the ball, but when you look back at those great teams, right, the 07 Patriots, the Bears, these other teams that led the league in point differential, they went, you know, undefeated through their first at least eight games. None of them lost a game in their first week. 
The Buffalo Bills got punched in the mouth early. That game was so disappointing. The team played so uncharacteristic of what we thought they would be. And it's almost like they needed that right out of the gate to remind them that, hey, this is who you are. You, you, you're capable of better. You just need to focus and make it happen. And if you get cocky, you can get caught with your pants down. And they've been taking it out on everybody since then. I mean, we're currently sitting second in the AFC standings behind the Chargers and I believe the Ravens now. Actually, I think we're third now. I think the Ravens, although because we have the same record against KC, you know what? We're doing this live on the air. I'm going to go. NFL standings, AFC conference. Boop, boop, boop. Doop, doop. We should just be number one in the standings. The Bills are currently based third. On, we should be one based on how much ass we've kicked. <laughs> so, well, when you look at it, we own the best point differential. I mean, the Chargers defense, the Ravens defense, both letting up 116 and 117 points respectively to our 64. 64 through five weeks of football. Yeah, I, I uh, looked. At, I was talking to my parents the other yesterday. I think about the Sunday night game, and I was like, "Oh yeah, over on on the season as a whole, the Jets have scored three more points than we have given up." <laughs> <laughs> and when you look at what all the teams that look to be in true contention in the AFC have in front of them, it's hard not to feel good about things from our vantage point. I mean, Buffalo's remaining opponents have a cumulative point three nine winning percentage. As of week six, second worst or second lowest in the NFL behind Tennessee, who we get to play this week. By comparison, the Chiefs have the AFC's toughest remaining schedule if you're looking at it in terms of 2021 wins and loss record. Like, this isn't going off last. That's why I hate strength of schedule preseason. Because it's always based on what happened last year, and you have no idea how that's going to change the next season, right? Like, no one saw Cincinnati being a, a team that could hang with the Packers and being a 3-2 and two team. Yeah, if you don't know football and growth. Okay, so that's my point. It doesn't take into account that growth. I like to look at the in-season picture. And the in-season picture right now is super favorable for us, and it really shits all over some of the other teams in this conference. Yeah, because the AFC South is so good. <laughs> Meanwhile, our division, from the looks of things... Just doesn't seem like they're capable of mounting any kind of serious challenge. I mean, all of them have roster flaws, which I think we come on this show and we talk about every week. They all have still developing quarterback situations. Sean McDermott, I mean, it, I guess you can't count it because he didn't beat Tua. He knocked, our defense knocked Tua out of the game in week two. But there's a reason that his record is 9-1 and one now against quarterbacks with less than a full year of starting experience. And our division is full of them. And then a combination of both down in, down in South Beach specifically. Remember the team? Remember the team, Chris, that was supposed to? Well, the, now that they beat the Patriots and the Bills lost week one, it, it's Miami's division. Who still, who still feels that way? Raise your hand. Uh, obviously, I'm still riding a little high off that buzz of beating Kansas City in front of the entire country on Sunday. But damn it, if I can't help get myself excited about a realistic scenario where the Buffalo Bills, for the first time since the early 90s, when I was still rocking footy pajamas. My mom had to cut mine off because my feet would peel. 
Your feet would peel? I thought you were going to say they were too small. Wait, your feet peel? Yeah, my mom had to cut all the booties off. What's wrong with your sweat that your feet peel? Hey, I had an athlete's foot at an early age. Born an athlete. Unlike you. That's how that works. I hate your guts. But there's this this realistic scenario starting to snowball here where our football team holds the top spot in the entire conference for the first time since the early 90s. How weird is that? Like, does it feel strange being a fan of a football team? After so long, I mean, I'm glad we started this podcast when we did. Yeah. Because we learned how to podcast through the lean times. Yeah, you I mean, learn to create... You try to create good content when your team is shitty, but... You also learn when, how to just pour beers into your face and commiserate over your... I mean, I mean, I'm, this is me personally. At, well, yeah, at least for you, this probably has to enhance your Buffalo Bills relationship with your dad a little bit more. Oh, it does. No, it absolutely does. And, and just in general, like, there is this massive wave of momentum building on our side that nobody else in our division can even aspire to. Who's going to get hot in the AFC East and make like a a division run now? Based no one. On what you've seen from these teams? No one. It's it's over. And the crazy thing is, here we are talking about this like overarching themes of the division, and our team is still far more focused on this one week at a time approach. They're better than us. They're better than us as people. And you heard it from Reed on our podcast earlier this week. You just see it. The team doesn't care. They just want to check mark. They, they, they want to go and knock these teams in the mouth, get onto the next one so that they can get onto the next one. And the Josh Allen revenge tour continues this week as we get set to take on another team that embarrassed us last season on primetime in the Tennessee Titans. Next week against the spread, the Buffalo Bills are three and a half point favorites. Being a road favorite is a pretty good feeling, right? Yes, I like it. But this matchup is certainly a different animal from anything we've seen thus far this season. I mean, if, if you don't know what I'm talking about, go check out our preview podcast. As big of a test as Kansas City was for our pass rush and our secondary, this game is going to be a major test for our front seven and just for their composure against the run. But with a passing attack like ours, I feel pretty good by winning by at least four, right? Yeah. I can't wait. It's going to be a fun weekend of football. Guys, again, recap podcast, preview podcast. Go check them out. Thank you to all of our guests. We're going to get the hell out of here. I'm Drew Gear. That's Chris Krueger. And this has been your AFC's Roundup. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment 
and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.